Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Good morning, short-term shoppers. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a very special guest that I am very excited about, the authority on all things tax-related when it comes to real estate investing, Mr. Brandon Hall. I am so excited to share this episode with you. There is so much knowledge being dropped in this episode. You do not want to miss a minute. He will answer every question you have ever thought of when it comes to real estate investing taxes, specifically related to, but not limited to, short-term rentals. Let's get started. Today, we have a very special guest that I think a lot of you are going to be really interested in what he has to say. We have Brandon Hall of Hall CPAs. He is the real estate CPA, and we're going to talk to him about how how short-term rentals affect your taxes and his advice on how to do them. So, hey, Brandon, how's it going? Good. Great. Thanks for having me on, Avery. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So can we start off with you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and about your company? Yeah. So I run the Real Estate CPA. I'm the managing partner. We have about 20 staff, uh, full-time staff. We're fully remote, so we don't do anything paper. It's all uh, all online on the cloud, which is cool because we can service clients anywhere in the United States and world. We have about 600 clients across the United States. Every single one of them is involved in real estate in some capacity. Either they're investing, they're running a fund, a syndication, they're flipping, developing, building, real estate agent, uh, some sort of capacity as a real estate investor. So we, uh, we, we see a lot of real estate stuff. We see a lot of good stuff, a lot of bad stuff, a lot of good advice, a lot of bad advice. And um, yeah, I, I, what, what else do you want to know? Is that a good intro? <laughs> that is a great intro. Cool. So are you having that many clients that are all involved in some sort of real estate? Are you seeing more people adding short-term rentals to their portfolios? People with investors with full-time jobs who are looking for tax benefits. Yes, we're seeing them add short-term rentals to their portfolio. Uh, in, in the tax benefits that can come with that, basically reduce your cost of capital, redu- reduce your cost of acquisition, reduces your risk um, of owning a short-term rental. So yeah, we, we are seeing a lot of people move into short-term rentals, especially with with COVID. It's, it's ironic. There's a lot of areas where short-term rentals are thriving, uh, even though there's you know, people are relatively scared to go outside and uh, not wear masks, but we are seeing our clients with short-term rentals in good travel locations, destination locations, like absolutely crushing it. So there's also that pull too. I have to say, I personally have benefited from that <laughs> with my rentals. <laughs> I think it's just a lot of people are like sitting at home, bored. They're not traveling nearly as much as they used to. So they've got money to spend. And if you're within driving distance and it's a cool location, you know, they're booking they're booking uh, these short-term rentals. We have clients that have short-term rentals booked out for like the next year and a half. It's, it's insane. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I have to work from home. My kids have to go to school from home. So why don't we go to a vacation rental at the beach or in the mountains or somewhere cool and yeah. we can just do all this from there? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Awesome. So the first question that I'm going to ask you is, in your opinion, is a short-term rental 
schedule E or schedule C or is it active or passive? What's your take on that? That's the number one question people ask. <laughs> All right. Yeah, this is the classic question. And this is probably going to be a really long explanation. So if you're listening to this, buckle up. Here we go. We uh, love that. Give us all the detail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm going to include citations too, because I know that there's a lot of there's a lot of CPAs and tax advisors that think it's one way or the other, but they're 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 not really like looking at the actual citation. So um, I want to arm your listeners with the actual facts. So the way that it works, th there's two buckets of income, all income. Every single dollar that you earn can can go into one of these two buckets. You either have passive income or you have non-passive income. Passive income is from any trade or business that I don't materially participate in. Not just rental real estate, but any trade or business that I don't materially participate in. So I could buy a stake in like a laundromat and I could earn passive income, but not materially participate. So it's just passive income. And then I could use other passive sources that create losses, like rental losses to offset that passive income. But if I materially participate in a business, then it moves from the passive bucket and it moves into the non-passive bucket. The other income that I have that's in the non-passive bucket is like my W-2 income, my business income, interest, dividends, sale of Bitcoin, uh, Apple stock. That's all in the non-passive bucket. So in the passive bucket is any trade or business that I don't materially participate in. And the non-passive bucket is pretty much all of my regular income. Also in the passive bucket are rentals. All rental real estate is considered passive by default unless I qualify as a real estate professional. So also in that passive bucket is rental real estate. So if I'm a, if I'm a real estate investor and I'm buying rental real estate, and I hear about all these awesome tax benefits, and, and a lot of the tax benefits come from depreciation, right? So I can buy a fourplex and I can rent it out. I can earn cash flow. Let's say I earn 10 grand of cash flow, but then I have $12,000 of depreciation. I get to tell the IRS that I actually lost $2,000. So it's a tax loss. Depreciation is a phantom expense. It's just something that tracks the deterioration of my asset over time. In that example, I don't pay $10,000 for the depreciation. In fact, $10,000 of cash flow actually hit my pocket. So that 12,000, I think I just said 10,000 depreciation, but the 12,000 depreciation is just a shelter. Uh, I, get to, I get to write my net income down by the depreciation and then report the net results to the IRS. So rental real estate generally produces a tax loss. So you get to shelter your cash flow. So you don't pay tax on your cash flow. Uh, and then you also get to tell the IRS that you lost money. But the question becomes, can I use that passive loss? And the answer is no, unless you qualify as a real estate professional or you meet one of the other passive activity loss exceptions. Real estate professional status is the big one. Um, and you have to work 750 hours in a real property trader business or businesses like being a real estate broker, flipper, landlord, combined, you have to hit 750 hours and you have to spend more time in real estate than anywhere else. So if I have a full-time job, I can't qualify as a real estate professional. So if I have a full-time job and I'm buying rental real estate and that rental real estate is producing great cash flow for me, but I'm also writing off a lot of depreciation. So I'm showing the IRS or I'm telling the IRS that I have a tax loss. That tax loss is passive. I can't qualify as a real estate professional. So that passive loss becomes suspended and carried forward unless I have other passive income sources to offset it, which is not typically the case with our landlord clients. So I'm just stuck. I, I get this passive loss every single year. It, it becomes a suspended passive loss and I just pool this large suspended passive loss over time. 
And I start scratching my head wondering, well, do I get the tax benefits? And you do get the tax benefits because you're not paying tax on the cash flow today, but you're also not able to use that passive loss. That's how it works. Passive versus non-passive. All rentals are by default passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. Now, full circle to short-term rentals. I told you this was going to be a long explanation. <laughs> I love full, it. Full, full circle to short-term rentals. Um, under Treasury Reg Section 1469-1 Cap T E32A. My goodness. <laughs> that is the memorization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you need that, you can come like you can email me. I can send you the citation. Basically, there's a treasury regulation that says if you rent a rental property on average to customers seven days or less. So Avery, if you go to a property and you stay eight days, and then I go to the same property and I stay six days, on average, it's seven days or less. Total rental days divided by the total number of tenants. If on average, you're renting seven days or less for a property, it's not considered a rental activity under the passive activity loss rules. So again, the passive activity loss rules say, any trade or business that you don't materially participate in is passive. Any rental activity, is passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. But if I don't have a rental activity, I don't have to worry about qualifying as a real estate professional. I just have to worry about materially participating in the activity. So now I can be a full-time employee. I can have a full-time W-2 job. I can be running a business full-time and I can buy short-term rentals. And as long as I materially participate in those short-term rentals, I will have a non-passive activity which is great because then I can juice depreciation with a cost segregation study. It's going to create a large tax loss. And that tax loss will be a non-passive tax loss, which means that I can use it to offset my W-2 income, my business income, my gain on stock sale, Bitcoin income, all of that regular income. So if I don't materially participate in a short-term rental, it's still passive. And if it creates a passive loss, that passive loss will be suspended. I can't use passive losses to offset my W-2 business income and other income. But if I do materially participate in a short-term rental, and if I rent it seven days or less on average, then it's considered not a rental activity for Section 469, the passive activity loss rules. And it just means that if I materially participate, it's a non-passive loss. Are you looking to purchase your first short-term or vacation rental or add to your existing portfolio? If so, the short-term shop the country's premier short-term rental acquisition firm is here to help. Not only will our team of expert real estate agents help you locate and acquire your next short-term rental, we have an entire back-end training program where we will train you on every aspect of managing your short-term rental from anywhere. From setting up your Airbnb and Verbo listings to the automation tools you'll need to streamline your business and connecting you to local cleaners and tradespeople needed to manage your property. We have offices in the top producing vacation rental markets in the nation, including Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, Wares Valley, and the Great Smoky Mountain areas of Tennessee. In Florida, Destin, 30A, Panama City Beach, Mexico Beach, Cape Sandblast, Port St. Joe, and St. George Island, Gulf Shores, Orange Beach, and Dauphin Island, Alabama, and the Blue Ridge in North Georgia Mountains. To set up your search or schedule a consultation, head on over to theshorttermshop.com. So the question you asked, though, was, is it Schedule C 
or is it Schedule E? Our position is that short-term rentals are by and large Schedule E activities. Just because it's not a rental activity under that treasury regulation that I gave you does not automatically mean that it's a service business and should be reported on Schedule C. And that's where we feel a lot of tax advisors mess up is they say, well, since that treasury regulation exists and it says it's very clearly not a rental activity, then this must be a Schedule C activity. The problem is, is that there's absolutely no case law. There's no support. There's no substantiation for that determination. There's nothing that supports me putting my short-term rental on Schedule C simply because it avoids the rental activity um, qualification under that treasury regulation. So we report our clients short-term rentals on Schedule E. It can be non-passive on Schedule E, uh, while all of your other long-term rentals are still passive. It's a determination that you can make on a rental-by-rental basis on Schedule E. If you provide substantial services to your guests, that's when it becomes a service business. That's when you report it on Schedule C. Or if you are a real estate dealer, that's when you're going to report it on Schedule C. It becomes inventory at that point. Um, And substantial services are services that are for the convenience of my guests. So I change the linens on a daily basis. I provide them with breakfast. I give them tours of the town. Uh, I, I have a bunch of surfboards and boogie boards and pool access for them. Those could all be looked at as substantial services. So you do have to be careful. You have to think through what am I providing for the convenience of my guest and does it rise to the level of substantial services to be reported on Schedule C? But most short-term rentals, at least in our experience, are going to be reported on Schedule E. That was a lot of information, but that's a lot of really, really good information. I feel like people are going to be rewinding and rewinding to to really listen to all of that. That's really, really great information. So I want to zoom in on the real estate professional thing really quick. So who is someone who would want to try to get that real estate professional status? Because I know I get a lot of clients who come to me, you know, maybe they're physicians and they really want to get that real estate professional status. And I know that's really difficult to do if you have a full-time job that's outside of real estate. So somebody like me, who I'm in real estate full-time, maybe that makes a little more sense. But can you just talk a little bit about who can get that, why it would be beneficial for someone to get that if they're not actually a real estate agent or full-time real estate investor? Yeah, so so the entire idea behind it is that if I qualify as a real estate professional, all of my rental activities will be considered non-passive. So my rentals that produce losses, I can now use the losses against my W-2 income and my business income without limitation. If I don't qualify as a real estate professional, let's say I go buy that fourplex, it cash flows $10,000. I have 12,000 of depreciation. I report to the IRS that I have a $2,000 tax loss. If I'm not a real estate professional, that $2,000 tax loss, and and assuming I don't qualify for any sort of other exception in the rules, that $2,000 tax loss is passive. So it, it just becomes suspended. It hangs out on my tax returns. I can't use it today. I can use it at some point in the future, but I can't use it today. So from a time value of money perspective, that's not ideal, right? Time value of money says a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow due to inflation. So if I can claim the loss today, I want to claim the loss today. So I want to qualify as a real estate professional if I can. But to your point, 
uh, we, we too see a lot of people wanting to qualify as a real estate professional who have no chance and they are willing to take extreme risks to get it done. Uh, we, we wrote a 12,000 word guide on real estate professional status full of citations because uh, we realized that people were being taught the wrong way and they were being sold that it was easier to achieve than it, it is in reality. It's actually a very difficult thing to prove and to substantiate. It's also a highly litigated piece of the tax code. Uh, we've helped in quite a few real estate professional status audits. And uh, most people lose because they're recording time that's not actually participation time in my activity. So like Avery, like you, you're doing this full time. You're a real estate professional, so you're fine. Uh, other people, though, if you if you are a physician and you're working a full time job, you're not going to be able to qualify as a real estate professional. You might be able to get your spouse to qualify. But, you know, we also run into like one spouse is super into real estate and they're the one with a full time job and the other spouse isn't really into real estate. And so the one spouse is really the, the one spouse with a full time job is the one that's really wheeling and dealing. The other spouse is just chilling, staying at home, you know, taking care of the kids, which is definitely not chilling, by the way. That's like a full-time job in and of itself. But the point is that under audit, they'll figure out who the actual participant is. So, so you really shouldn't try to game the system. Um, but if you can't qualify as a real estate professional, like I, I can go buy a fourplex. Maybe I spend 500K on it. I can run a cost segregation study on it. A cost segregation study basically takes that $500,000 of acquisition costs and it reallocates it between personal property, land improvements, and the building itself. So I get faster depreciation schedules, but also I get 100% bonus depreciation on about 30% of the acquisition price. So if I buy a $500,000 fourplex and then I cost segregate it, I can very easily write off $150,000 or so in the first year, thanks to bonus depreciation. And, uh, and that would create a really large tax loss. If I'm a real estate professional, I can use that tax loss against my income. Awesome. And let's talk a little bit about that cost segregation. So what are the benefits of, you know, maybe a new investor? I know that cost segregations typically, and you're you're the tax professional here, so correct me if I'm making an incorrect statement. Uh, typically, the higher dollar properties make more sense to do a cost seg on than like a $100,000 long term. Like, for example, we just did one on a pretty large short term rental that we have here in Florida. And can you just kind of talk a little bit about which types of properties it makes more sense to do that on and what the tax benefits are for someone who's like a total newbie. Yeah. So uh, first, a cost segregation study. It, well, let's talk about how rentals are depreciated. So when you buy rental real estate, you depreciate it over 27 and a half years. Um, there are certain carve outs for short term rentals that you, you might actually be depreciating over 39 years instead of 27 and a half years. But rental real estate is depreciated over 27 and a half years or 39 years. So if I buy that $500,000 fourplex, I have to strip the land value out. So I might allocate $50,000 to land and I'm left with $450,000 of value that I depreciate over 27 and a half years. So I take 450 divided by 27 and a half and that's my annual depreciation amount that I get to claim every single year. What a cost segregation study does is it says, we're going to look at that $500,000 fourplex and we're going to allocate the value a little bit more accurately because $450,000 depreciated over 27 and a half years is fine. But in reality, there are components within that building that are going to wear out faster 
than 27 and a half years. You've got carpet, appliances, windows, the roof, the HVAC system. You've got land improvements like, like concrete and parking lots. All of those things might not last 27 and a half years. So what we're going to do with a cost seg study is we're going to go and identify all those components. We're going to assign value to it. And then we're going to be left with uh, a five-year depreciation bucket. So we might have $50,000 of value in our five-year bucket. Uh, and that's all personal property. We'll have some value in a seven-year depreciation bucket. And then we'll have value in a 15-year depreciation bucket, as well as our 27 and a half year bucket. So once you do a cost segregation study, you're going to have value allocated to five year, seven year and 15 year components, as well as the 27 and a half year building. You'll have less in that 27 and a half year bucket though. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to have 450 K left in my 27 and a half year bucket. If I've allocated some of that out to my five, seven and 15 year buckets. But basically what that means is I, I can depreciate Let's say that it was the $50,000, right? $50,000 over five years is a lot faster than $50,000 over 27 and a half years. I've increased my depreciation allowance every single year until I fully depreciate that specific bucket. So it basically accelerates my tax loss, uh, my ability to take my tax loss, and therefore accelerates my ability to recoup tax savings because I get a refund with these, with these tax losses. With bonus depreciation, though, I can 100% expense any component with a useful life of less than 20 years. So when I do a cost segregation study, I can typically allocate 20 to 30% of the purchase price to components with a 5, 7, and 15-year life. So if I can allocate 20 to 30% of the purchase price to 5, 7, 15-year lives, that's all less than 20, 20 years. So I can 100% bonus depreciate it. So I purchased a 500K duplex. Um, I allocate 150,000 to five year, seven year, and se five year, seven and 15 year property. And I can immediately expense the $150,000. And that's beneficial because now I've got a really large tax loss. I get to report that to the IRS and I get to recoup tax savings. So I get, I get a big refund and it's really just all time value of money. So that, that's what cost segregation study is doing. It, it's an arbitrage strategy. It allows me to recoup tax benefits today. But the caveat is it is a it, we are manipulating depreciation and I do have to recapture depreciation when I sell the property at some later point. So I will pay a tax on all of the depreciation that I have taken or could have taken over the hold period whenever I sell that property. So it is a it is a give me the savings today. Let me reinvest those savings, earn money, and then I'm going to pay those savings back at some later point. So even if you don't take all of the the depreciation up front, when you go to sell it, you would still have to pay the tax on what you could have taken. The could have taken comes in when I don't take any depreciation at all. So, so sometimes we run into investors who say, hey, I, I heard about this depreciation recapture thing. So I'm just not going to take depreciation because I don't need it because it's just going to add to my suspended passive losses. Um, and that, that's where the could have taken comes into play. So, so you don't have, you don't have to worry about could have taken when you have bonus depreciation and all of that. Um, the could have taken comes into play if I've held a property for seven years and I've never taken a dollar of depreciation, the IRS is still going to assess a tax on you as if you had taken depreciation over that seven year time period. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's back up just a little bit or to the beginning for like a new investor who 
maybe has two or three properties and they're trying to scale their portfolio. Maybe they're still, uh, they haven't utilized all of their conventional loans yet. And you're finding all these really great ways to show a loss on their income, but they say, Hey, Brandon, I don't want to show all these losses. I need to be able to use this tax income to qualify for more properties. What the, what's the scenario then? Well, the, the scenario is one of two options. So the, the first option is to work with a mortgage broker that understands that they can add depreciation back for the purposes of calculating DTI. Um, the second option is if you can't find mortgage brokers that, uh, that, that know to do that, then you might not want to be accelerating your depreciation. But typically, you know, our, our clients run into this every once in a while where, where a broker, a mortgage broker will look at the situation. Yeah, I mean, th th these guys are just checking boxes, right? Like a lot of them are checking boxes and, and they're just trying to push a loan through. So they see a big loss and they go, oh, sorry, can't do it or need more explanation or this doesn't make sense. Sometimes we'll get pulled in, like the CPA will get pulled into the conversation to explain how depreciation works. And then they'll realize, oh, we just add this back for the calculation of DTI. So it's really, um, in most cases, it's a non-issue. It does become an issue when you are expensing repairs. So, so if you've figured out a way to like expense a lot of your repair work that you're doing, that can cause a problem with DTI because that's not something that you get to add back for the purposes of DTI. Okay, awesome. So basically you're just reiterating how important it is to find a good lender. You don't wanna just use any old lender where it's just you know maybe some random loan officer that got assigned your online lead. You need to get a good recommendation from perhaps another investor for a loan officer who knows what to do with depreciation. depreciation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing to think about too is like, if you are working with a lender who, who isn't adding it back, who, who's giving you a lot of grief about it, just know that there are plenty of other lenders out there that understand how this works and work with a ton of investors and they will certainly take you on as a client. So don't think that it's into the, it's the end of the world if a mortgage broker tells you no. That's really good advice, not just, you know, in terms of taxes and depreciation, but it, with getting a loan in general, just keep keep going until you get a yes, basically. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to completely switch gears on you here and switch to the other question that everybody always asks that I say, you have to talk to a CPA about this. Holding the property in your personal name or in an LLC, what's the difference tax-wise? <laughs> Great question. So there is no difference. Uh, you, you can you can hold it in your personal name. You can put it into an LLC. No tax difference whatsoever. The LLC will pass the income through to you. If it's a single member LLC, then it's considered disregarded for tax purposes. So we would literally pretend like it doesn't even exist. We would report the short term rental on your Schedule E, just like we would if you had it in your personal name. If you have a partnership LLC. Now you have a separate tax return that you have to file. So you're going to incur additional costs to get that done every single year. And that still is going to pass the income through to you. Um, it's just an extra step in the filing process. So no tax changes. One thing that I, uh, I've recently become aware of is that there are uh, professional service providers saying that, hey, if you go create a management company, so you create a property LLC, that owns all the properties. Then you go and you create a management LLC. As long as you route all of your expenses through that management LLC, 
you're going to be good to go. You can deduct all of those costs. They can, you can offset your W-2 income. You don't have to worry about the passive activity rules. And uh, that doesn't work because all of those expenses are associated with the actual rental activity. They're all still associated with that passive activity or non-passive if you materially participate. But I just want to point out that simply opening up a shell company to route my expenses through is not going to provide me any additional tax benefits. It might actually expose me to audit and uh, very bad audit results because they might deem that you're not even in the business to make a profit. So they might just disallow all the expenses. So don't don't like get trapped into or don't fall victim to if I create these cool, unique entity structures, I'm going to be able to save a crap ton of money in taxes. If it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Um, you can use a combination of corporations to do certain things tax-wise, but that's typically a very unique situation. So we tell people, hey, just keep it simple. Do what you need to do from a liability perspective. Talk to an attorney. Make sure that you're covered from a risk perspective, but don't go into this thinking that you're going to save boatloads of money in taxes. Awesome advice. I see a lot of people who want to hold each property in a separate LLC. Does that require a different filing for every single LLC? It depends. So if every LLC is a partnership LLC, then the default answer is yes. If you are partnering with your spouse and you live in a community property state, then you do not have to separately file for every single LLC. Um, but if you're partnering with anybody else, then the answer is yes. You have to file a partnership tax return for every LLC that is a partnership. But if I set up 10 LLCs and they are 100% owned by me, I don't have to separately file, at least at the federal level for that LLC, but every state's a little bit different. So always check your state. You might have to file an annual information return. You might have to file with the Secretary of State, franchise, excise, that type of tax. So what does it look like then if you have an overall holding company with a bunch of LLCs owned by the holding company? How does that look tax-wise? Yeah, so that's actually a really efficient structure. Because every once in a while, we run into people who have have gone the, let me set up 10 partnership LLCs with my spouse uh, to own my 10 different rental properties. And I'm not in a community property state. So I have to actually file 10 separate partnership tax returns. You know, like like we're, we're a minimum 1500 bucks for a, a partnership tax return. So that's 15 grand in tax filing fees. It gets really expensive real quick. So the solution is to set up a partnership holding company that 100% owns the LLC that owns the property. So you got the property, then you have the LLC that owns the property, and that LLC that owns the property is 100% owned by your holding company. So you don't have to worry about that 100% owned LLC because it's disregarded for tax purposes. Uh, so it's a really scalable model because I can have one holding company that's a partnership LLC, one partnership tax return, and then I can drop down below it a ton of single member LLCs to own the actual properties. And I won't increase my annual filing costs. Awesome. That's That sounds like a really great strategy. I think that a lot of people really want to use LLCs from a liability standpoint. Maybe we'll have an attorney come on and talk about that and give some legal advice because that's certainly not what we're doing here. Um, but I think that... Uh, you're right. It can get really, really expensive if you have a hundred different LLCs that you have to file separately. Yeah. And, and 
you know, in, in my work as a CPA, we get to see a bunch of different attorneys and their approach. Um, and we get to see a lot of different entity structures. And, and I will say that the more complex the entity structure, uh, the higher annual cost, either in dollars or in admin time. And you just have to understand what you're getting into from from an ongoing admin burden we, we we end up with a lot of clients that have really complex like structures in place to 150 percent mitigate the risk uh, which is great if, if that's what you need to sleep well at night then by all means go for it a lot of our clients find out though that they can't keep up with the paperwork and it's very convoluted and cumbersome to keep everything organized and straight um, so they end up like like not going this incredibly complex route uh, so just just make sure that you understand what your risk tolerance is. Work with attorneys who will consult with you on that before they you know throw anything in place and design the actual entity structure for you. It's really important that you that you identify that. That's great advice. So we've gotten really really technical and really down into the nitty gritty of this stuff. So we're going to take a step back and ask a more broad general question. So you have a ton of clients. You have a ton of experience. In your experience, what is something that you see a lot of investors get tripped up on when they go to start adding short-term rentals to their portfolio tax-wise? From a tax perspective, it's material participation. It's the Schedule C versus Schedule E, um, but 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 material participation above above all else. Because like like I said, like if you if you have a seven-day or less on average rental period, you don't have a rental under section 469, which means that all I have to do in order to move it from the passive bucket to the non-passive bucket is materially participate. So then the question is, well, what does material participation look like? And that's where people try to um, get creative. <laughs> uh, we, we, and again, you, you can't get creative here. You have to actually be participating in the short-term rental activity. If I have a property manager on my short-term rental activity, I'm not going to be materially participating. There's no way that's going to happen. So I've got to self-manage it. I've got to coordinate everything. I've got to be doing the repairs and the maintenance work. You know, I've got to spend time visiting that rental and and doing that repairs and maintenance work. I, I I've got to be in charge. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to substantiate under audit that I've materially participated in the activity and. You know, sometimes we see people say, well, I'm, I'm going to do research hours or I'm going to I'm going to listen to this podcast. Uh, I'm going to go to a, a bigger pockets event and all of that time is going to count towards material participation. And that's not true. Travel time is not going to count typically towards material participation. Investor level time, unless you're involved in the day to day activity, is not going to count towards material participation. So you've really got to be like actually making the property go. You've got to be involved in the day-to-day operations of the property in order to count the material participation hours. You cannot get fancy with this because the IRS will certainly strike these hours under audit and uh, it'll end up with you owing a lot of back taxes and penalties. So you're saying it's great to be creative when it comes to real estate investing and the strategies involved with that, but it's not great to be creative when it comes to taxes. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Look, c- creativity is saying, I'm going to buy short-term rentals because of that exception to the rules. I don't have to worry about real estate professional status. That's creativity. C- creativity is not, 
while I, uh, I logged um, two hours of research time or I'm logging time, quote, managing my property manager, unquote, time. You know, that that's not where you get creative. You, you want to be able to to substantiate a time log or, or to be able to have a time log with these actual hours coordinating with the tenants, doing the marketing, doing the advertising, coordinating with your contractors and your cleaning crew, doing the repairs yourself, doing the maintenance yourself. It's work. It's actual work that you have to put in to, to get it done. So color inside the lines when it comes to your taxes. So 100%. <laughs> yeah. Don't get in the gray area on the taxes. It's not worth it. So we're coming to the end of the show. We have two more questions. What, Brandon, if for a brand new investor who's coming to you saying, okay, I haven't invested yet, but I want to make sure I set this up the right way from the get-go, what advice do you have for a brand new investor coming in? Um, well, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. Uh, that's, that's probably not going to serve me very well in terms of growing my business, but, but don't let the tax tail wag the dog. A lot of people get really caught up in the tax piece and in the legal piece. And sometimes for good reason, especially on the legal side, you know, you might be in a high risk environment. Maybe you're a physician. Physicians get sued a lot. Um, maybe you're in an industry where, where you, you are subject to that type of risk through your day job and you want to protect your wealth. So, you know, get the legal stuff figured out, but don't let the tax tail wag the dog. I mean, it's important to understand this stuff, but we can also figure a lot of stuff out after the fact too. It's not a huge detriment. Um, so I, I like to see people take action. I like to see people get in there and do a deal. Uh, and I'm not the I'm not going to be the person that says just go and do it. You know, don't worry about it. Figure it out later. Uh, you know, the numbers have to make sense. Uh, you are investing your money, and and you're going to be investing a lot of time to manage this thing. So make sure that your numbers make sense. But but I like to see people take action before worrying about all the other tangential items. That's great advice. And the last question is what is your favorite book or perhaps a book recommendation or a book that has impacted your mindset? That's a great question. Uh, I, I have to say How to Win Friends and Influence People. I read that book first when I was in college. It changed my entire world. Um, and I reread it probably once every year just to refresh on, uh, on How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's a great one. A, a lot of people really love that book. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon, thank you so, so much for giving us your time today and coming on the show. Uh, if anybody, all of our short-term shoppers out there want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? Yeah, well, we have a Facebook group, Tax Smart Real Estate Investor. So come check that out. Uh, we're on YouTube, The Real Estate CPA. You can check out our channel. And then if you are interested in exploring a relationship, um, come to www.therealestatecpa.com and you can navigate our website and fill out a form there. Awesome. Y'all can find him all over the place, apparently. Thank you so much, Brandon, for coming on. Thanks, Avery. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Absolutely. 